Welcome back to the Policy Viz Podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. Now, for the last few weeks on the show, we've focused on data and technology and the intersection of those two and how that intersection can punish and profile people of color and low-income people and families. And in some ways, that's been a move away from the core content and the discussions I usually have on the show. Um, but today, we're going to get back to some core data visualization work. And I'm going to talk with Aaron Williams, who was formerly a data journalist at the Washington Post, and that's where he was when we spoke in late August. Um, he is now at Netflix um, doing some Great work there, I'm sure. And while at the Post, Aaron produced some amazing visual journalism. In 2018, probably my favorite piece of his, Aaron and his colleague Armand wrote a story about segregation in America, and they created this series of dot density maps that I still think may be some of the best I've ever seen. Um, just a combination of the text, the colors, even the background of the entire piece is really just, just amazing. So more recently, uh, this was over the summer, Aaron published the code for that project to an observable notebook so that others can use it and, and model their work after it. Now, we talk a bit about that of the observable notebook and the code, and some of that is a little over my head. But if you're into JavaScript and you're into observable notebooks, you're going to love that, uh, that part of the discussion. So we talk about Aaron's work at The Post. Uh, we talk about what's coming up for him at Netflix, and we also talk about conversations he's had about challenges uh, journalists of color face in the newsroom, which is an interesting part of our discussion. So I'm sure you're gonna like this talk. I'm sure if you've seen his work, you'd love it. So here's my discussion with Aaron Williams. Hey, Aaron, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well, John, thanks for having me. Uh, hanging in there in these, uh, I think strange times is yeah. an understatement. Yeah, yeah no doubt. <laughs> Well, thanks for coming on the show. Um, I'm excited. You've got um, you've got a number of great projects, and there's a particular project that I want to I want to dive into in some detail. Um, and you've got a new exciting opportunity coming up um, on the West Coast, and I want to talk about that. Um, but before we get into all that, maybe be helpful for you to talk a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you ended up at the Post uh, on the graphics desk. Yeah. So uh, again, I'm uh, Aaron Williams. I'm, I'm currently a data reporter at the Washington Post. Uh, I'm originally from California. Um, my background is in journalism. I have been working as a journalist for you know almost a decade now. And I initially, when I started out in this work, uh, was very interested in focusing on, uh, I started off as like a, a neighborhood reporter, like you know, neighborhood like reporter in San Francisco. And uh, I remember like there was one story in particular that I did where the neighborhood I lived in, which is the Excelsior neighborhood in San Francisco, the city had commissioned kind of like a report or like a survey asking people in the neighborhood, you know, how safe they felt in their neighborhood. And so, you know, they had all these tables and graphics they used to like not only do the survey, but then kind of report what they found. And I, it was the first time I had kind of discovered the idea of data journalism, right? Which was like mm. using data that's being published by the city or by some kind of government, whether local, state or federal, and trying to find stories out of that versus like how I had traditionally at the time been reporting, which was like basically cold calling people and knocking on doors and people being like, who the hell are you? <laughs> like, you, know, kept, <laughs> you know, like, which was just not a style I liked. So like, I was like, oh, if I can work with like data from the city, you know, not only does that, well, I have like more targeted questions to ask, uh, that will hopefully mean I'm doing less of the kind of cold knocking on doors of strangers who are like, I don't trust you. 
and I could actually like report on stories that like weren't just like floating there, like happening in real time. Like it required like kind of knowing the city's uh, publishing schedule around data, getting to know the the public information officers and kind of the data folks like in the city halls of San Francisco. And so that's what kind of set me on this journey. You know, and that was like roughly in like 2009, I want to say. And so that was kind of my start. Uh, and then in the, in the meantime, while I was kind of working on my my journalism career, you know, I was living in San Francisco. Um, you know, it just seemed like if you weren't coding, like you weren't cool. <laughs> so I, and I don't, and I, and, and I don't know if like, maybe it was just because it was like, you know, like I was just, you know, this was like at the height of like Zynga and like, of like, oh, also yeah. becoming like the behemoth tech company. Just like Twitter had just moved to Soma. And so this was like when all of that stuff was happening. And I remember thinking like, oh, I need to like, like I should learn some of these skills because, uh, you know, just in case, you know, I want to change careers or just in case I want to try something new, I'll do it. So I actually remember um, I went to San Francisco State and I applied to be to do a take a minor in computer science. And my mm. journalism advisor at the time was like, why would you do that? Like, these are like totally uh. separate career choices. Like what you like, she's like, why don't you like minor in history or like philosophy or something? So I actually ended up minoring in philosophy. Uh, which has some parallels to programming, but, you know, I then took it upon myself to, to like teach myself how to code. So like during that time of like, you know, going to school and reporting, I was also on the side, just like Code Academy and those kind of things didn't really mm-hmm. exist at the time. But I was, uh, or they were like really like new, but I was like, you know, just getting books off Amazon or like out of the student library. And, te- and I taught myself uh, Ruby, uh, mm-hmm. which was also the popping programming language at the time, you know, so popular, right. but um, but that was kind of my start uh, into getting into this whole world. And then, you know, you flash forward after a brief stint at the LA Times, I ended up getting a job at uh, Center for Investigative Reporting, uh, which is now called Reveal. Um, and that's where I really kind of started to build my skill set as a data journalist. That's where I learned Python. That's where I did like my first like real analysis and got really deep into D3 and data visualization and uh, using all of those tools to do investigative reporting. And so, you know, I did that for a couple of years. I then worked at the San Francisco Chronicle. And then about five years ago, uh, the Post reached out to me being like, hey, uh, we see what you're doing over in the West Coast. Would you like to bring your skills to Washington, D.C.? Um, <laughs> and at the time, you know, I was like, you know, I'm never leaving the West Coast. You know, you're going to have to, like, drag me kicking and screaming out of here. But yeah. You know, um, the post had, you know, this was like maybe a year after the police shootings database had just been published, uh, mm-hmm. you know, by John Myskins, Wes Lowry, and all the folks uh, who worked on that project um, at the post. And I was just like enamored by the post's ability to take data visualization and deep, you know, investigative reporting to talk about something like really crucial in society. And so I was like, I would be stupid not to like try to like <laughs> go over there and try to do some of this work and work with those people. So, you know, packed up all my stuff moved 3,000 miles across the country, uh, and I've been at the Post since. So that was like, wow. you know, that's kind of the, the long haul trajectory that got me here. There's a lot of amazing parts of that story, but but the one that strikes me is like your journalism professor sort of said, don't, why would you worry about coding? And that was like only a decade ago and how much oh, things have changed. Yeah. Oh, that's totally. amazing. Like I- I think about that all the time because, uh, you know, and, and I've talked to that, that advisor since, like, we're friendly, but mm. um, I have told them that I'm like, yeah, you were like so off the mark because it's not just that learning how to code for journalism is like, like now seems like a no brainer. 
like software just generally is like a huge facet of like all parts of society at this point. Right. right? So like right. you could learn how to code and work in business. You could be a journalist. You could be, you know, even a carpenter, you know, you can like an architect. Like, it doesn't matter yeah. what skills that you use. Um, knowing a little bit of software engineering um, or coding uh, will get you really far in, in all of those disciplines. And so, yeah, like, I think about this all the time now because I'm like, and like, I'm glad I taught myself how to code because there's like an alternate world where like, I, you know, minored in, I don't know, like history. And then I just like never went that route, you know, yeah. my career, my life would be totally different because of that. Right. Um, what's also interesting about your origin story, as it were, is that you came from a, a sort of true traditional journalism background, whereas a lot of people who and now doing data viz, they come from all sorts of different walks of life right? They're astronomers, yeah. they're economists, mm -hmm. they're, you know, whatever. And I'm curious when you are, um, one thing I've been talking about with people on the show and, and elsewhere is the difficulty that people who are, uh, their background is more technical. So they're, you know, maybe they're a social scientist or a mathematician or a statistician. And then talking to people is very foreign to them. It's not something that they're used to doing, even though we all acknowledge that that's useful to the skill of being able to talk mm -hmm. to the people that we are studying or or communicating with. And I just wonder, do you find that that you have this additional skill set where talking to the people that you are collecting data about or downloading from some other place is just more natural for you? And, and does that make your job both easier and the final product better? Because that part of your, you know, you're able to just do that and have the experience doing that reporting. Yeah, I mean, I think that to some level, the my background as, uh, you know, a quote unquote traditional journalist certainly helps. Um, but I think the the really the big skill that I think as a journalist that helps us do like, like when applied to like data journalism and data visualization, that is really crucial is skepticism. Um, and I say that mm -hmm. because I think if you like watch just even this year, kind of, you know, um, at the kind of onset of the COVID-19 epidemic, you saw kind of like every like armchair economist and like data science student do like a COVID data project. Like, I don't know if you remember, <laughs> you know, like March through June of this year, it yeah. just seemed like everyone suddenly became an epidemiologist, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. And I found that infuriating for a lot of different reasons. One, uh, because it just seemed like there was like this like mad rush to be like we i have to make the definitive covid dashboard and a lot mm -hmm. of it was like i think in good faith right like the, it, there wasn't a lot of reporting being put out by the federal government there's a lot of just uncertainty about what was happening and so i think folks were trying like we're actually eager to try to like be like i want to like do something about this so i mean i think a lot of it was in good faith but i think often what i saw people report like you know, whether like their, their denominator was really bad or it just like the, the data sources they relied on were like super wonky. You know, I just thought, you know, like a lot of these things I saw kind of get propped up in those early days. Like as a journalist, the first question you're asked is like, is this data even legit? Who produced it? Right. Um, like, how are they tabulating this? Is it consistent over the time frame that I'm trying to report, you know, or trying to visualize? Like, these are questions that I think any, like, economist, social scientist, anybody, like, with any kind of data background wants to ask. But, you know, I think skepticism is, like, the biggest trait a journalist has. Like, and, and usually with that skepticism, that then means you have to go talk to somebody who can either back your skepticism or say, oh, actually, like, 
here's something else you should have like you should look at. So I mean, I think that my background in terms of like being able to talk to people certainly helps, but I really do think it's the skepticism and the uh, the idea of not taking data on its face as like legit. That's the the most key aspect of the role, I think. Mm-hmm. Do you think? I mean, aside from the COVID dashboards that were littering the internet uh, a few months ago, do you think in general people are not as skeptical with their data as they should be? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think just generally, not just data journalists, but I think just when people think of data, there's just this like, built-in assumption that it's um, without bias, right? That like, right. the data, whoever collected it was kind of done in this laboratory setting and it's machine run and there's no kind of built-in assumptions when, I mean, I think, you know, as you likely know, as probably listeners of this podcast know, you know, data is produced by people. So people's assumptions get put into that data. The data you don't collect is just as crucial as the data you do collect, right? And so um, I do think that uh, because data science and, and data visualization is kind of an interesting discipline right now, because if you have both like folks like journalists and academics who are deep in it, but then you also have artists and people who more want to kind of do more, um, not like that, that they're, they're not like back to the science, but I think there's also like kind of this artistic angle to it. And then you also have mm-hmm. folks who uh, are using data and visualization to just like, you know, focus more like analytics, metrics and like business building. And so all of these, and everyone kind of has built in assumptions in all these different places and things they, they're willing to not break on versus things they are willing to break on. And I think that like all of that together just kind of creates an interesting kind of like conundrum of like, when should you be skeptical of the data? Now, as a journalist, my assumption is always be skeptical. All data you collect mm. has pr- inherent problems, inherent bias. So y- it's your job to figure out what those are and how mm. much of that then impacts the thing you're trying to visualize or the or the statement you're trying to make, right? And, that, and just because the bias there doesn't mean that the data is bad, but you just need to know what that bias is before you move forward. Otherwise, you can end up publishing something that's misleading, right? So um, yeah, but I think that there's a total like, assumption that all data is good. I think it's changing. I think that with the rise yeah. of like social media and kind of just like we've seen like some bad actors with the use of data, I think there is kind of now a more general consensus that not all data is good, but I still think mm-hmm. that there is this underlying assumption that, you know, if someone hands you a data set that is perfect, you should just, you know, rock with it, which I don't think is true at all. <laughs> Have you had an experience uh, lately where You've been working with the data set and you've been skeptical about it and you've gotten down, you know, some length of the project and said, uh, I can't use these data because of whatever reason. And you've, you've just like abandoned a project. Uh, I mean, I think the closest example of that in recent memory would be the kind of early COVID data that was being reported mm-hmm. by a city, state and county uh, health departments. And it's not mm-hmm. that the data was like misleading. It's just that. Um, you know, really early on, you know, like anybody wanted to know, you want to know, like in my state, how many COVID cases are there? Um, how many tests have been done? You know, just some really kind of high level questions. And really early yeah. on, you know, me and the folks working on like these projects realized that data was just not there, or if it was there in some places, but not in other places. And sometimes they included how many total tests they gave, and sometimes they didn't, or they did briefly and then removed the data because it made them look bad, right? Like there was just like all of this like craziness happening with that, with um, those early dashboard days of COVID that made it insanely difficult to actually say with like some kind of authority or like, you know, clarity what was happening. And so I think, um, you know, a lot of the early meetings I was in at the Post where we were talking about 
what was happening, like 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 the data we were collecting data around this. You know, a lot of the talks were just like me and uh, Stephen Rich, who's also a data a data reporter at the Post, and others, and Andrew Tran, who's also a data reporter. Like it was like the mm-hmm. three of us basically being like, we can't use this. Like this is bad <laughs> because wow. like we couldn't figure out how. Like we knew that just looking through the data that like it wasn't collected in a consistent enough fashion for us to make a a full like you know full throated claim of what's happening. Obviously right. that changed. We then brought in more folks who helped us collect this like scrape and uh, collect data from different uh, health departments. And then that's what now ends up powering the dashboard on the Washington Post. But, you know, those early, like that March, April, May zone was just a lot of us trying to figure out like, well, what can we say? Because right. we, you know, just felt like the data in some places would be, was being reported, but it was only like a handful of jurisdictions or they had only tested like once or twice, like, you know, so it, it, so that was more just having to do with how the data was collected, less about the data just being like outright bad or wrong. Right, um, right, right. This is interesting because it, it's actually a good segue to the project I wanted to spend a little time talking about, which is your um, segregation and diversity maps that you published at the Post uh, a couple of years ago. Um, these dot density maps that are just, I, I just think, uh, spectacular. And then uh, a few weeks ago, you posted the code to an observable notebook. And um, so I want to give you a little bit of uh, space to just talk about the observable notebook and how folks can use it. Um, but maybe before we get into that, you can talk a little bit about the project itself. And then maybe we could also talk about the missing data because uh, the project has, as I recall, six different uh, race and ethnic categories. And of course, there's a lot of diversity across and within those racial groups that are not captured by our standard federal data sets. And, Absolutely. you know, how did you think about having a category, you know, for black people and a category for Asian and Pacific Islander people? Like, how did you think about these, these different groups that are, you know, they are missing pieces, they are missing people who report their race in, in maybe, you know, different ways and, and capturing and not capturing uh, the diversity of the country. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, um, yeah, so that was a long question and I sort of like, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's like, here you go. Just talk about it. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. I just, great. No, I, I think I, I got what you were kind of setting up. I think I got this. Uh, <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> um, so yeah, so the project, um, the story is called, uh, America's more diverse than ever, but still segregated. Um, it published, uh, May, 2018, it was me as well as uh, my colleague Armand Imamjame, who's currently um, an assignment editor for the graphics desk at the Post. Uh, we've been longtime friends and colleagues uh, for years now. Uh, and so this project was kind of born out of my desire to bring some, some data, some uh, clarity to the question of like what's happening in the country. Um, you know, I live in Washington, D.C. Before that, I lived in Oakland, California. And in both instances, these are cities that have seen like rapid change both in the the demographics of the cities, the racial demographics, but as well as the kind of uh, class demographics of those cities. And, you know, having moved from the Bay Area, which, you know, was it is still the most expensive place like on the planet, but, you know, mm-hmm. was near the most expensive place on the planet that yeah. had rapid gentrification to then moving to D.C. where kind of the same thing was happening. Um, you know, I had all these kind of conversations with friends of mine um, who were just kind of like, oh, yeah, I remember when this neighborhood used to look like this, but now it looks like that, right? And wow, like the black population of this part of the city is getting pushed out. And now this is the demographic group that's, you know, taking that over. So my question was like, okay, well, could we actually like use data to show that, right? So that was kind of the the kind of genesis of the project. I then wanted to also measure the idea of segregation 
which, you know, when you look at these dot density maps, they're really great, but we're, we're just, we're showing where people in theory live, but we're not actually measuring segregation, right? Segregation mm -hmm. is like, you know, the actual separation of people along racial lines, right? Um, and, you know, so my, my, what I wanted to also figure out is that could we, can we not only show where different demographics have been and are over time, but can we then like add a score that says like, hey, this block of the city is actually like, if you look at like the distribution of people in it is like fairly isolated by one racial group. And because of that, right. that is like in some way showing segregation in a way that just like showing where black and white and Latinx and Asian folks live, you know, it, that's part of it, but we're not actually like scoring the, the, the blocks that those people live in. So that was like the second yeah. aspect of the project. Um, so yeah, and so you know, I use census data from the 1990s census, uh, 2000 census, and 2010, so the decennial census years, um, as well as the latest um, American Community Survey data, which at the time was the 2012 to 2016 five-year release. And uh, my colleagues uh, Dan Keating and Ted Melnick helped me out a lot because uh, census geography changes over time, so they helped me standardize to the 2010 census geography. So that way we, we could have a, you know, apples to apples uh, comparison of the same blocks. Yeah, so that, what we did there was like, you know, I uh, looked at a couple of different places. Uh, I wanted to kind of understand the history of segregation in America. And um, I spoke with a researcher at American University, um, whose name is Michael Bader, who gave me like a helpful way to think about it, which was kind of like, you kind of have three ideas of, of segregation, you kind of have the legacy of like historical segregation that was set up, you know, right after the Civil War, uh, during the Reconstruction era, you know, you then have, so you have like white flight that happens like, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And then mm -hmm. you kind of have the new, uh, since the 70s and beyond, you now also have kind of these rapidly diversifying suburbs. So like a great example of that is like Northern Virginia, um, and kind of how like communities like Annandale and Fairfax and Falls Church and those communities have like rapidly become more like Latinx and Asian American over the last, you know, 20, 30 years. And then right. you have places like Houston, uh, Texas, that um, to some level has level of segregation, but because of just the, the, the fact that the city was kind of developed later compared to like a Chicago or a New York or DC, you know, because of that, Houston kind of has a, also its own unique mix of uh, racial uh, integration and segregation. So I wanted to kind of, so we, you know, I, I, so I tackled, you know, Chicago, DC, Houston as kind of three examples of how segregation and racial integration works in the US. Uh, and so we, you know, I did dot density maps around those three cities. And then finally, we just published all the data uh, for the entire US in a, a map box vector map that allows you to you know type anywhere in the U.S. see where you grew up see how either integrated your neighborhood is or how segregated your neighborhood is and hopefully <laughs> that then led you to either have conversations with your local uh, your local politicians or your family or you know spark something in uh, in how you felt so but yeah but that was the genesis of the project out of all the work I've done as a journalist I think I'm most proud of it's the one that you know it's the one that got me to this podcast uh, it's the one that um, <laughs> uh, folks. Uh, often ask me about, and so I'm really proud of it. And it, and I think it really shows the power of what you can do with data um, and visualization to, yeah. um, you know, tackle something as insidious and, but crucial as, you know, racial segregation. Well, I'll just say this. So, so I saw you talk about this project at OpenVizConf, I think in Paris a few years ago. Um, mm -hmm. And I remember asking, you know, you had chosen this sort of dark gray background for the whole thing. And I was like, you know, why this dark gray background? And 
And I still remember your response was just because it looks whack. Like it just, it just looks good. But there is a, there is a design <laughs> element to this piece that I think is really striking. Um, do you want to talk maybe a little bit about that? And also maybe folks should definitely look at this project maybe before they, maybe they pause here and take, take a look at the project if they haven't seen it. But just also like, like the choices of color that you use throughout, I think just are striking in the way they pop off the, pop off the page. Absolutely. All right. So yeah, the color choices I, I picked for the maps were it, we deliberately chose a dark background. Uh, and the reason for that was just the, the fact that we use like what um, a lot of social scientists use when they use census data to break up uh, race into six categories. Um, so we chose, you know, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Pacific Islander, Native American, and then kind of everybody else. And so everybody else includes anyone of two or more races, someone who chose a race that did not fall into any of those categories, and things like that. And so we had to pick, you know, six distinct colors. And so Armani Mamjume were playing with several different color palettes until we decided on these six, you know, multi-hue colors that we felt like were a good representation of the data that weren't obviously racist in their in their color choices <laughs> right. you know yeah. um and that you know were to some level colorblind safe as well you know which was like no yeah. easy task like it was insanely difficult to choose six colors that met that threshold um yeah and so when we initially did the data um or visualized the data we had it on a white background and it looks fine like it looks very very cool so you know and if you go to the observable notebook uh you'll see it's also on a white background uh, just because that's how observable it's designed. But we then uh, were just messing around one day and we decided to place the data on kind of a, you know, a soft matte black uh, background, if you will. And the colors mm -hmm. just really just popped, right? Just because of the, 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 the sheer contrast between light and dark. And I think that we just decided that's kind of the aesthetic we should go with for this project because, um, mm -hmm. you know, and also, like, you know, you look at a lot of Washington Post projects and just a lot of news site projects in general. It's just a lot of serif type on black type on white backgrounds. You know, most news websites to some level fit the same kind of like genre palette of like what you see on a news article website. So by going with white type on black, uh, we just felt like it, uh, you know, it kind of bucked the trend of what you would normally see on a news website. And, you know, to your point when you answered the question uh, at OpenViz, why did I choose it? I just thought it looked really dope, you know, like, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, you know, I'm a, I'm a hip hop kid at heart. And so I was like, it just looked really cool. Uh, you know, I, I would, I would put this like in my, you know, my studio or in my apartment or whatever. So, um, but yeah, but you know, color is a huge part of this project, I think too. Um, and then even when we, you know, created the the diversity layer to actually measure the level of segregation in every census block um, in, the, in the data, you know, we chose kind of a, a very traditional um, green to purple diverging color scheme, um, and that was, you know, uh, that one was much easier to do because we're you're kind of only grading on a zero to one diverging scale, which allowed us to kind of keep the colors fairly simple. But you know. We really tried to create palettes that were really striking that kind of popped off this black background and that would hopefully keep you scrolling and clicking on the project. No, I agree. I mean, I think the pop is what does it for me, right? Like it just like when I look at this map of the entire United States, 
it's you know the red really pops off the yellow pops off and also the areas where there are not a lot of people living right like the you know the rocky mountains there's just this sort of like emptiness in the country which i think also like the lack of data as you sort of talked about alluded to earlier the lack of data is is part of this story absolutely yeah um it was actually really funny i remember um one of the comments after we published this story it's like someone was like you really want me to believe that all those dark, empty spots, like people don't live there? And I was like, yeah, like those are like mountain ranges. Like, I mean, there, I mean, there might be some people like, you know, like in the woods somewhere, but not to the point where if you zoom out to the entire, you know, American continent that you're going to see, your North American continent that you're going to see a dot pop up. Uh, but it was just so funny because, yeah, because I think it also, you know, if you look at this map, the quote unquote black belt through the south really comes through really strikingly. So, you know, um, the... The, the kind of huge uh, Hispanic population that populates the, you know, American Southwest and obviously California really come, really emerges. And then um, another kind of uh, feature of this project I really enjoy is that if you look around the Phoenix, uh, Arizona area and kind of going north into the, the, the Dakotas, you can actually see where the large, like, you know, Native American populations are. So you mm-hmm. see like, the Navajo nations, like really big. Uh, concentration right there, um, you know, in Phoenix and then kind of going up into the Dakotas, the, the, the assorted, uh, you know, Native American First Nation groups that are there. So, I mean, I think, you know, again, it really kind of shows the the power of this data. I think, you know, if you were to ask me about in the U.S., kind of which racial groups populate which parts of the country, we kind of know this to some level because of just being American and kind of knowing kind of the setup of the, the, the nation, but to see it actually put on a map where you can actually identify, oh, I've been there, oh, this matches my experience. Um, or, you know, maybe you're like, hey, I never actually thought about the concentration of this people group in that area. What's the history behind that? You know, I think that, you know, that's where this project, I think, really kind of uh, elevates the discourse around, you know, where people live in America. So, Right, right. Can you talk a little bit about The Observable Notebook and um, I guess why you decided to put the code up in Observable and how people can use it for their own dot density maps. Absolutely. So uh, for the listeners of this podcast who are not familiar, Observable is a online web-based notebook environment um, that uses, it's kind of its own, it it uses JavaScript, but it's kind of like its own flavor of JavaScript. Uh, It's like, if you know JavaScript, you can mostly work in it, but it kind of has like its own uh, kind of set of, keywords and syntax it also provides but it's a really great way to explore javascript code without you know setting up a web server and kind of like your own coding environment you know you just all you have to do is go to observablehq.com and start coding you know and it works entirely in your browser which is really nice um and so again when i published this project uh, two years ago i think probably the first question i got was like how the hell did you do this right and i think right. um a lot of people thought i used traditional techniques uh so a lot of folks who have d- built dot density maps in the past have used tools like uh qgis or qgis um or use you know r or python which you know have really mature uh statistical and uh gis tools for doing this exact kind of work um but a lot of folks were surprised that I did it entirely in JavaScript. And so, mm. uh, which I think really kind of, for me, was also, I wanted to, in some way, you know, I, I use all those languages. I use Python, I use R, I use QGIS. I love all those tools. But at the time, I was just really deep into JavaScript. And, 
you know, I wanted to see if there was a way to do kind of the level of sophistication in terms of like uh, GIS analysis that you would do with Python and R, but in a language like JavaScript that also, because it's, you know, in the browser offers a lot of kind of advantages that Python and R do not. And so, um, you know, I told people I did it in, in Node.js or JavaScript and uh, they were like, well, can you like write a blog on how to do this? But, you know, as you probably recall, um, I had not only had I just prob- published the project, I was getting ready to talk about it at OpenVizConf. So I right. was not really in a position to like also do like a code deep dive. Um, <laughs> also, if, if for anyone who's ever published uh, a behemoth of a, either like an analysis or a project, you're usually not eager to go right back into that code. You kind of want to like never think about it again because you just <laughs> spent all this time thinking about this one thing. So I was also kind of eager to like not look at the code anymore. Um, also, um, you know, I wrote this code, you know, for a while, like when this project started, it, um, I was kind of doing it in some ways as a passion project. So I was kind of doing it in my off time between stories at the post. And it wasn't until, you know, February of 2018 that my editor at the time, Katie Hink, uh, kind of gave me the full, uh, you know, she was like, I'm gonna take everything off your plate. You can just go deep on this. Uh, mm. And so that's when, and then I brought, you know, Armand in and, you know, he, you know, kind of had to read my tea leaves to figure out what I was actually trying to do with the code. And then together we finished <laughs> the project. But like that code was not written for like public consumption at all. Like it was written right. by, like in kind of my, and, and, I, and I, think I'm a, I think I'm a pretty competent, uh, you know, software developer, but like, you know, I was not writing this code to like be used by anybody else but myself. Um, right. So, you know, there's just like all these things that were going to have to happen in order for me to even explain this code. Also, um, I have tried, I have tried and failed at least, I want to say 15 times to start a blog <laughs> about my work. <laughs> And I have just come to the conclusion that I just, I don't think I want to blog. Like, I think I'm just bad. I I don't want to maintain a blog. I don't want to, like, I don't want to, like, promote it on Hacker News or on Twitter. Or I just, you know, I just, I can't. Like, I don't want to do it. Like, me working as a journalist is, like, enough. So I was like, okay. So And, like, so if you go to, like, my website, my personal website now, it's just, like, like a really brief bio and, like, a link to my Twitter, my GitHub, and I think my LinkedIn. I think that's it. Um, so I was like, ah, oh, man, now I got to turn this into a blog. Like, that's like more coding. I don't want to code anymore. Like, I was like, I was so tired of wanting to code. So, so basically, I kept telling people I'll do it, but then I didn't do it. Um, but basically, once Observable came out, there now came this huge opportunity because I wrote the code in JavaScript to actually begin porting it over uh, to a web environment. Like, so Observable, uh, I mean, it got announced a while back by Mike Bostock, who's also the creator of D3. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it kind of, like the beta came out maybe, I want to say just over a year ago or a year and a half ago, something like that. But I remember I started using Observable for just even my own production work. And it kind of has, and it still is in a lot of ways, the main way I kind of explore data using JavaScript. I just find it incredibly comfortable to use. Uh, and I love that you can use kind of the full ecosystem of uh, NPM, which is Node Package Manager, uh, it allows you to use all these uh, tools that you know normally you need to run a server and have you know JavaScript set up on like your computer, which w- requires you setting up a development environment, working in terminal. You know, with with Observable, I can just literally open up a tab in Firefox or Chrome and just start doing it. Right. So like the, right. the, the upfront cost of setup is so much lower now. Um, and so I, always, I was already using Observable for some of my own work. And then finally, it kind of came to a point where I was like, you know what? You know, 
Observable had matured a bit. I had since moved from the graphics team to the investigative desk at the Washington Post, which kind of meant I wasn't doing the kind of day-to-day reporting I, that I had to do, that I was doing on, as a graphics reporter. I kind of had a little more time on my hands uh, as I was kind of investigating and doing more. Uh, and, and just also that job required less kind of front-end development. I was doing a lot more you know, analysis and stats and Python and R. So, you know, I wasn't writing front-end code as much. And so, you know, I was like, you know what, I, I'm going to take some time and actually, you know, break down exactly how I did this. And it took me a while mm-hmm. to do it because, again, I hate blogging. So, you know, and Observable, <laughs> I was effectively creating a blog. But, like, the one thing that Observable allowed, which is something I, I wanted to show people with, with this project, was, like, it's one thing to, like, for me to just, like, copy and paste code to, like, a code block on, like, a blog. And it'd be like, hey, if, if you can read this code, this is how it works, right? But by using Observable, you could actually run the code in the browser, which I think mm. kind of totally shifted the power of actually writing about it. Because now not only am I explaining how I did it, you can literally in real time see the code running. You can go in there and change the code. If you want to change the colors I use, if you want to change the scale of the map, that's all available to you directly in the browser uh, and you can manipulate the code in real time. And like that didn't exist, uh, Project Published. So right. I think the power of moving it to Observable is that it allowed me to not only explain the code, but then allow for, for anyone who's interested in it to like literally go and poke around the code uh, and do their own, like manipulate it so they can hopefully get a better understanding of how it works. Um, right. So yeah, so th- I, mean, that, I mean, I think without Observable, this, you, you likely would not have still have seen this code because it would have required me to set up a blog, which again, as I've said, I, I just have, <laughs> I, I, I'm really bad at, at doing it. Um, so, Do you have a good name in your head for a blog? Or, but you just you just didn't get that far. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, my, my, my so website, I don't know. Like my, my website is acwx.net. Um, so I guess it would be like slash blog. And like, I don't know. <laughs> I could probably think of some like really like I don't know nerdy right on yeah right. I don't know man this is that only certain people would understand would get the there's like an inside joke in yeah. the name of the blog yeah, exactly yeah. yeah and I don't know man like I mean what's funny is my Twitter kind of handle about Aaron that I use like basically everywhere I actually came up with that because in um, Firefox um, if you type about colon config you can mm-hmm. like adjust the browser like the browser settings underneath right. the hood of firefox so that's where my my username actually comes from uh, <laughs> uh it's like it's like about colon aaron like as if you're right. like getting under the hood of my life but like i came up with that handle when i was like 19 20 <laughs> right, like something right. like yeah. that like I, I, uh, and uh, dear listeners if you hear i am not 19 or 20 anymore it's that was a long time ago so you know i i i'm kind of done with the overwrought like right. look at me i understand how to like clearly you know i know how to code i'm going yeah. to hammer that over in the name of my blog <laughs> or my handle yeah. i right. just haven't changed my handle because it now just kind of like sticks i'm just like i'm too yeah lazy. that's right like it becomes this thing that you can't get rid of, right? Yeah, basically what I'm trying to explain to everyone listening is that I'm just incredibly lazy. Like I don't want to do <laughs> any more work that I absolutely have to do. And the only reason why you know, I was able to publish this code for your consumption is because a bunch of other very smart people built an entire notebook right. environment for me to do it. That's like, you know, that made it just so much easier to do it. Uh, that so. is great. That's great. Okay, so we've learned we've learned a few things about, about you today. Um, so before we wrap up, I want to just talk for a minute about uh, you're leaving the post um, mm-hmm. and at least in the short term, virtually heading back to the West Coast. 
Uh, do you want to talk about the the new gig you have coming up? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I've been at the post for about five years, and um, I decided I wanted to try to you know explore how to use data um, in just a different environment, and also think about you know a lot of my work has focused around racial equity and data equity, and so I wanted to see what it's like to tackle those problems in just an entirely different domain. And so um, I recently accepted a job at Netflix where I'll be working on the content science team as a senior visualization engineer. Um, I can't really go into too many details about what the job entails because I have not started the job yet. So, you know, and hopefully when this podcast comes out, I am still employed with that job. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I have have no reason to think otherwise, but you know, 2020 is crazy like that. Um, But yeah, but no, I think it's just a huge opportunity. I think, um, you know, when you work in the data science and data journalism space, you know, it sometimes it sometimes felt like to me that um, a lot of us who, particularly as data journalists, we, we were kind of all playing like a, a really high level version of musical chairs where we were all just dating each other's jobs. <laughs> um, where like, you know, one person might work at the Post and then they might work at the New York Times and then they might go to like a Chicago Tribune or an LA Times and then you might go back to the Washington Post or back to the New York Times. You might go to like a nonprofit like ProPublica or the Marshall Project. And like, you know, and I have nothing but respect and admiration for all of my peers at those organizations and journalism that comes out of them. Um, but I think, you know, as I was thinking about my career, I wanted to try to just see like, well, what else is out there like what else could I do and for me getting or a similar style job at another news entity wasn't really what was calling me I, I wanted to try to see well could I bring like journalistic thinking and thinking around equity to a space that maybe isn't inherently journalistic uh, mm-hmm. or inherently like it isn't like a news business by design right and so you know Netflix you know it's like this behemoth of a company that you know is having like an insane year because of you know, COVID, you know, and they just, they have a lot of data and I'm, you know, and so when they first reached out to me, you know, I had, I actually had no idea that they were even doing data this work. Like, you know, I knew that Elijah Meeks uh, used to work there. He's a, you know, a very uh, well-known D3 and data viz person. Um, and I knew a couple of other people like Susie Liu, who's also like a really mm-hmm. fantastic uh, data viz developer. Um, but, you know, I really didn't really know um, that like, they were looking for people who had kind of my skill set to uh, apply to some of their uh, their work around content specifically, um, and so yeah, so you know they, we talked about it, and it's been it was kind of like an ongoing process for a while, but they finally came back to me saying like we're, we're really eager to like explore the the ideas you're in, and I felt like it was just like a really great time for me to you know just try my hand at something different. So so yeah, so you know it's still very new. You know I'm still finishing up my tenure at the post. Um, and then I'll be starting there in a few weeks. But yeah, but you know, it's going to be interesting to see what it's like to apply these kind of skills in a, in a different domain. Right. Uh, really Absolutely. Excited. Yeah, it sounds great. And uh, I, I trust you'll get a free Netflix subscription too. So I mean, I hope be, so. I mean, yeah, <laughs> like, you know, I've been watching a lot of uh, Netflix as is everyone right now. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I, I'm definitely, you know, that's like another thing I'll take on. But yeah, but you know, and I think like, um, I, kind of, I alluded to this earlier in the podcast, but like data is everywhere and working with data is everywhere. And I think like, um, you know, in the same way that my advisor, you know, was like, why would you be a, a data scientist? Uh, <laughs> you know, or why would yeah. you learn how to code if you want to be a journalist, which now seems crazy. 
you know, uh, to say the way I'm kind of thinking about this is that like it's, a lot of people are, are now even asking me like, why would you as a journalist go work at an entertainment company? But right. it's kind of, but it, I feel like my entire career has always been about taking skills that don't seem like they match and then finding a way to make them match. Um, right. Uh, and I think, you know, certainly what you, like, as I also talked about in podcasts, bringing skepticism, bringing, trying to bring justice and equity to work. I mean, I think being able to apply that in a space like Netflix, in a place that reaches millions of people, in a company that is, you know, deciding the kinds of content that we watch in our homes, you know, there's a lot of power in that. And so, you know, for me, I think it's kind of interesting. It, I think on paper, it might seem like I'm doing like an entirely different job, but I think in some ways to me, it feels like I'm actually, this is like a natural conclusion of the work I do. Like it's mm. not actually like a totally different role. In many ways, it's taking the kind of same concepts and ideas I've played with um, over my career and just kind of taking it to a, a different direction. But it's not different in that it's unrelated. It's just like not in the same industry. Uh, but the right. work is very much congruous. So I think that that's uh, you know, the way I've been thinking about it. Interesting. Well, it sounds like a great gig, and hopefully you'll be able to share some of the work that uh, that you do and comes out of it, or at least share the improvements in Netflix that come out, and uh, we'll have a <laughs> chat again in a little while and figure out. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. And yeah, hopefully, you know, like I said, like in my in a little Twitter thread that like I don't think I'm ever going to stop being a journalist. Um, yeah. You know, so it, it remains to be seen what my workload is going to be like, but um, you know, I do hope you know I can get a little bit of uh, freelance work here and there. Uh, right kind of, you know, publish some stuff. Cause you know, like, I don't think, you know, like, as you can imagine, just because I stopped working full-time in media doesn't mean I don't stop thinking about stories. And sure. so, you know, you know, thankfully there's, there's stuff like observable that allows me to kind of play with code um, and publish stuff pretty easily. So, you know, certainly I think I'm going to try to uh, get more stuff out on that in, in observable specifically, and then hopefully, you know, work with other places. Uh, so yeah, so we'll see, but um, yeah, I'm yeah. excited. It'll be a nice, change of pace. Uh, and so hopefully when I come back on the podcast, uh, I'll have more to talk to you about. Uh, That's great. That. That's great. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I'll, I'll, I'll book you right now. We'll, we'll do it again. <laughs> yeah. Man. Um, thanks so much, man. This was great. It was great to chat with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I can't wait to uh, hear the chat live. <laughs> All right. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. And thanks for everyone to turning into this week's episode of the show. I hope you learned a lot. I hope you will check out some of Aaron's work from the Washington Post. And if you are able and interested, you go over to his observable notebook and take use of the fact that he's opened up this code for you to use. It's an amazing resource. If you would like to support the podcast, please share it with friends and family. Use your social networks to tell folks about it. Write reviews of it on your favorite podcast provider. The show is on all major podcast providers, including iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you'd like to support the show financially, head over to my Patreon page, where just for a few bucks a month, you can get a mug, you can get key insights and new stuff before anyone else finds out about it. I email patrons every month to tell them what's coming up on the show. But in any case, make sure you tune in next time for the podcast. More great episodes coming your way. So until next time, this has been the Policy This Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.
a number of people help bring you the Policy Viz podcast. Music is provided by the NRIs, audio editing is provided by Ken Skaggs, and each episode is transcribed by Jenny Transcription Services. The Policy Viz website is hosted by WP Engine and is published on WordPress. If you would like to help support the podcast, please visit our Patreon page. No.